So we just finished up a series called Holier Than Thou. Hope you saw it. If not, you can go online and watch all those sermons. And we're getting ready to get back into the book of Romans. We've been studying Romans for a long time now, and we're going to move into chapter 9 in a couple of weeks. But this week, uh, kind of an in-between. So we're going to just look at a passage of Scripture today together. Um, and to get there, I'm going to start with this. We, you know this. So I'm going to state some obvious things up front. So bear with me. But this, we just need to state the obvious here. We live in a world with a lot of noise. And I'm not just talking about those of you who have kids at home. I'm talking our world, the noise of just all of the information, all of the people crying out for our attention all the time. There are so many people and so many voices constantly begging for us to look their way, to hear what they're saying. Uh, Herbert A. Simon was a, a, a... philosopher, a psychologist, an economist, he coined a phrase back in 1971, the attention economy. And he said this, this quote from Herbert Simon, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Here's what he meant. What, when we talk about economics, what we're talking about is how we use limited resources. And we often think of that in terms of physical material things, money, uh, materials that we use to build things, But Simon said, and and I think we could all agree that this is true, our attention, the ability to focus on something, has a limit. We can only focus on so many things. In fact, honestly, we can only focus, truly focus on one thing at a time. And with so much noise and so much information and so many different voices calling out to us, it really makes it to where we don't have enough attention to give to all of the possible information that exists. He said this in 1971. He died in 2001. He didn't even live to see the iPhone. So talk about a wealth of information. We live in a culture today with so much noise, so many voices calling out to us all the time. And how do you gain attention in that kind of an environment? How do you, with, if, if attention is a commodity, and if you want to be successful, you have to maximize people's attention. You have to do something to stand out. You have to be louder. You have to be more extreme. You have to ratchet up and amplify every emotion So nothing can be in the middle. Nothing is okay. Everything either has to be the greatest of all time or the absolute worst, complete, and utter disaster of all time. There's just so much noise. If you want to stand out, you have to be different and you have to be extreme. And It's not just the amount. It's not just the volume. It's not just there is so much but it's also the content of all that information. Look at this threat. You need to be afraid. Look over here. It's life or death. Add to all of that, in our culture, which is so obsessed with fame, we're told often that our own personal value comes from the way we are perceived by others. That to be truly successful in life, we have to capture and hold other people's attention. 
Not only are we constantly having voices trying to get us to look toward them, we feel and we live as if we have to constantly create and hold other people's attention. What's the result? All that noise, all that information, all that striving for attention, what does it lead to? I think you know. It leads to a lot of anxiety. A lot of worry, a lot of fear, a lot of tension. Because not only do I have to try to figure out what to and who to listen to in all this noise, what's a threat and what do I do about it, but I also have to try to figure out how am I going to get people to look at me? How am I going to get people to look away from their phone and and look at me? How am I going to get people to notice me and value me? All that tension, all that anxiety, but thankfully, thankfully, when we come to Scripture today, we see a passage that has the absolute perfect, perfect answer to the problem of anxiety. Because in the book of Philippians, it says, don't be anxious. Stop being anxious. There it is. Why are you laughing? It's the perfect answer. We live in an anxiety-fueling world. There is so much to be worried about. There is so much to be scared of. There's so much to be afraid of. But it's okay because the Bible says don't. Just don't. Just don't do it. Stop it. Just cut it out. Stop being anxious. That doesn't feel very helpful, does it? In fact, it kind of feels counterproductive. All the things I have to worry about, and now you're adding on top of it that I'm not supposed to be so worried. I'm just going to worry more about that. Not only am I upset about all these different voices that are speaking to me now in my mind and in my heart, I'm also going to add shame on top of it based on the fact that I feel anxious. This does not feel helpful. But I want to look at this passage today in our time together. It's in Philippians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you, please, open it up and hear uh, what it has to say, Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under your seat in front of you, and it's on page 982, 982 in that Bible. Because here's what I want to show you, okay? And here's what I want to look at. I I want to look at this, this passage together. I want to see what the Apostle Paul, who wrote these words, what he is saying specifically, I want us to see what he's saying about attention and how it's possible, it is possible, Paul says in this passage, it's, it's not easy, it's not automatic, but it is possible to live above our anxiety and instead to live in peace. But we have to understand exactly what it is he's saying. So let's take a look at this together. Philippians chapter four, I want to start in verse number four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. All right. Understand this passage in Philippians. We need to understand a little bit of context of who wrote it, when he wrote it, all that kind of stuff. So Philippians is a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it in jail. Okay, so... I think that's really important to understand because when somebody, when anybody comes to you and says, don't worry, stop being anxious, what's your automatic, what's my automatic response? That's easy for you to say, right? Because when we internalize, when we have anxiety in our hearts, anybody who's coming to us and trying to help us, our first thought is always, yeah, but... Yeah, but if you were in my situation, if you understood what I was really going through, it's, and, and sometimes this is true, okay? I just want to make sure we're clear. Sometimes it is true. Very often, people will try to tell us not to be afraid, not to worry, not to be anxious from a place of comfort. And that doesn't help at all, okay? Because there really is really hard stuff in life. There are things worth being upset about. So I want to make sure we all understand when Paul writes these words in Philippians, he's not sitting poolside in Porto Vallarta with a nice drink and saying, hey, you guys stop worrying. Life's good. Paul's in prison. And he's speaking to the church in Philippi, which was a city that was not welcoming or friendly towards believers in Jesus. In fact, they were experiencing real, honest, true persecution for their faith. So Paul is speaking to people in truly difficult circumstances, and he's speaking from his own truly difficult circumstances. In fact, we can see this flip back a couple pages, Philippians chapter 1. This is the very beginning of his letter. He highlights this, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, talking about being in prison, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, Paul is speaking from prison. But you can see right here in chapter 1, the part, a, a kind of a preview of what he's going to get to here at the end of the letter in chapter 4. Paul is choosing, and we see this right up front in this part in chapter 1, he's choosing to tell a different story. Or rather, we could say he's choosing to look at his story as the story God is telling. Look again at the passage. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served, really actually the truth of this situation. Okay, here's the situation. I'm in prison. I'm in prison. That's bad. But, but I want you to know, I want you to understand it's really, what it's really doing, it's serving to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. The people who have imprisoned me are hearing the gospel and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul says, I'm looking at this horrible, awful situation. 
And I want you to understand, when you see my horrible, awful situation, it's a, a good thing. And most of the brothers, this is talking about the other believers. When he uses the word brothers, he's talking about members of the family of God, men and women, who are also believers. Having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word. He says, hey, listen, I'm in prison. It's awesome, okay? Because now there's guards hearing the gospel. And there's people who aren't in prison, but they heard about me being in prison, and it's making them bolder. Isn't this great news? Is Paul crazy? Has Paul lost his mind? Is he disassociating himself from reality? No. Look, Paul recognizes he's in prison. He knows that's not a good thing. But he's telling the story that his imprisonment happened for a purpose. And he's seeing how God is using his imprisonment to advance his kingdom. And because Paul is telling a different kind of story, he's able to live instead of with anxiety, rather to live with peace. Now, when I say telling a story, what do I mean? Am I saying Paul's making stuff up? Not at all. All of us tell stories all the time. It's what we do. It's how we make meaning out of our lives. We are storytelling creatures. It's a part of what makes us human, okay? Back in the early 1910s, 1920s, there was a guy, a Russian filmmaker named Lev Kuleshov. Lev Kuleshov, uh, anybody ever heard of the Kuleshov effect? No, I'm a nerd, so I have, but you guys aren't, so you haven't. So let me explain it to you real quickly, okay? He was a very, very, very early, early filmmaker. And early on with movies, I'm going to go, uh, cut, you, you might have to cut me off because I can get nerdy about this stuff, but early on in movies, the first, if you ever see the first movies, what they did was they basically had a stage show with a camera and the camera just sat there and they just filmed what was on the stage. So watching a movie was like watching a play with no sound. Several uh, early filmmakers, Lev Kuleshov one among them, realized, wait, with a movie we can do things differently because we can have the camera here and then we can move the camera and control what people see. Or we can have an image of one thing and then cut to an image of something different. And so Kuleshov did some experiments. And the first one um, was he, he made this short film where he had, and when I say short film, it's like 30 seconds, okay? So this, this image of an actor, okay? And by itself, this is very vague, isn't it? And if I ask you, what is this person feeling you don't know. You have no idea. But what Kuleshov did was he cut that image with other images. So like, he would show this, in this movie, he would show, can we go to the next one? Do it. Yeah, okay. This is a bowl of soup. And so he would show this and then cut back to the image of the actor. And then he would ask people, what emotion is the actor feeling? And they'd say, oh, he looks hungry. And in fact, they'd be like, wow, what a good actor. Look at how he's expressing that hunger on his face. 
And he would do this with multiple. And so that one's hunger. And then he would have an image, and I don't have this because I think this was a little disturbing, but he had an image of a child in a casket. And then he cut to the image of the actor. And people said, look at the grief on his face. And then he showed a picture of a woman sitting on a, on a couch. And they, shut, they cut to the image of the actor. And they said, oh, look at the desire on his face. It was the same image. It was the same picture of the actor. Like literally the exact same image. But people told a story in their head based on the other image that was up against the picture of the actor. Kuleshov said, here's what this tells us, as, as first for filmmaking, but then for, for life in general. We make meaning out of disparate things when we put them together. So if I see an image that would otherwise be what we would call neutral, when I put it with another image, I connect them. My mind just does it. I don't think about it. I just make the connection in my head. Okay? And we do this, and he said in movies this is really important because it tells us that the way we edit a movie is as important or more important to how we tell a story as what is literally on the screen and being said. It's how those images connect together. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but what does have something to do with what we're talking about today is that all of us, human beings, are constantly making movies in our heads. We are taking all of the different images, all of the different pieces of information, all of the noise, and we're choosing to edit it together in specific ways that tell specific stories. There's a lot of stuff happening in our lives. There's a whole bunch. We've started with this. There's a whole bunch of information constantly. But the question isn't, what information do we see? The question isn't, what voices are speaking to us? The question is, what do we do with the information we see? Or to put it another way, how are we editing the movies in our minds? What are the ideas, the stories, the motivations that we are intercutting together with the moments that we live by? Because when something happens to you, you don't just experience that event in that moment, you draw upon memories of other things that have happened to you in the past. Which memories are you pulling together and connecting with the events that are happening now? What information, what stories, what beliefs are intercutting with the information that you're hearing in your life? This brings us back to Philippians chapter 4. Look at the way that Paul starts out the passage we read today. Chapter 4, starting verse number 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I would call that a command or an exhortation. Paul is telling us to do something. But then look what he says next. The Lord is at hand. And that's a statement or a promise of a truth. God is near us. And commentators say that can be taken in two different ways. It could, the Lord is at hand could mean God is here now. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he is with us. Those of us who are believers, he is in us. 
The Lord is at hand. And it can also be taken to mean that the coming, the, the return of the Lord could happen, will happen, is imminent. That one day God will restore everything. Either of those things is true. The Lord is at hand. That's just a promise. But then he says, do not be anxious. What we started with, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Another command. Another exhortation. Don't do this. Do this, rejoice. Don't do this. Don't be anxious. But he follows it up again. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Another promise. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's cutting together. He's, we could say, editing together. A command followed by a promise. A command followed by a promise. So here's what we do sometimes, unfortunately. It's what I did at the beginning of the sermon. We pull just the command, don't worry, out by itself. And we say, here it is. Don't be anxious. Stop being anxious. But like a single frame in a movie, you just take that and put it by itself. Then what do all of us automatically do with our minds? We edit in the context around it. And when I say don't be nervous or don't worry or don't be or stop being anxious, the, the montage that you're going to cut in to go with that is all the different reasons why that command doesn't work. Because this is true, and it's difficult and scary. This is true, and it's life-threatening. This is true, and it's heartbreaking. And we edit together. But Paul didn't say this by itself. He's got a different edit. The Paul cut of this film goes command, promise, command, promise. You can't take these, these commands without these promises. Look, if God isn't near us, then there's not really much ba basis to not worry. If, if the peace of God isn't available to us, then there's not much purpose in rejoicing. We can't follow the commands without the promises. And in fact, call them, we call them commands because it's stated as a do this kind of a statement. But if we believe the promises, then the commands actually become kind of natural. Why would I worry if God is near me? Why wouldn't I rejoice if the peace of God is available to me. If we take the commands without the promises, all we get is do better, try harder, buckle down, stop worrying, just stop it. But if we have both, if we have both God's commands and God's promises, we have the ability, again, not easy, not automatic, but we do have the potential to live above that anxiety. All of which sets us up for verse 8. How do we, how do we live our lives so that our mental movie cuts in God's faithfulness instead of our own anxiety. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Here's what Paul is saying. There's a whole bunch of stuff you could choose to focus on. What if, what if we chose to focus on things that are, to kind of put a a, a bow on all of this, excellent and praiseworthy? What if we gave our attention Our, 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 our most devoted attention to those things which will remind us of who God is and what he's done. So here's a silly question. It's a rhetorical question, and of course it's, do the words true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy describe your regular information diet? Would that be a good, would those words be a good way to sum up what most of you, he, most of what you hear throughout the week could be described as? The truth is, the, the truth, the truth is, we don't always have an option about what we hear, right? I mean, just driving to church today, how many political signs did you pass, Right? We see stuff all the time. We hear stuff all the time. We don't get to choose everything that we see, experience, or interact with for 24-7, but, but we do get to choose what we focus on. Some things in your life, some of the things in your mind get more of your attention than others do. And you get to choose that. You get to choose how much you focus on specific things. Now, what we all know is that it's nearly impossible to not think about something, right? The only way to not think about something is to think about something. Paul could have written this verse very differently. He could have said, don't think about what is false. Don't think about what is dishonorable. Don't think about what is unjust. Don't. He didn't. Because we don't succeed by trying to not think about something. Instead, we have to choose to focus on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely. What is that? What in the world could we focus on? What literally in the world could we focus on that would check all those boxes? Well, look what he says in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace. He promises in verse number seven that we can have the peace of God. But the only way we can have the peace of God is if we focus on the God of peace. There is only one human being, there's only one person in all of history who is true, 
honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent. There's only one who's worthy of our praise. It's Jesus. Jesus lived a pure life with no sin. He he took the just punishment that we deserve for our sin on himself. If we trust in his sacrifice, then he commends us to the Father so that when God looks at us who are sinners, God sees us as lovely. Not because of who we are, but because of Christ's honor covering over our guilt and our shame. And when I say that, that's not a myth. It's true. It actually happened. And we don't, we don't have to strive to be excellent because Jesus is already and was already and continues to be excellent in our place. And we can rest in that. That is worthy of our praise. We call that the gospel, the good news. What if we focused on that? What if that story, the good news of Jesus, what if that was the main story? What if that was our main narrative? What if that was the story through which we viewed all the other story? What if the gospel was the second frame in all of our mental montages? Every event cut to Jesus. This awful, horrible thing is happening in my life. Cut to Jesus died for me. This horrible news that I just received, how am I going to survive and live with this? Cut to Jesus will come back. This ridiculously stressful world we're living in, the socio-political situation of our, of our entire nation, our entire world, and I'm so stressed about it, cut to Jesus is in control. And he loves us. What if that was how we edited together the story, the story of our lives, the story of the world? I just want to make this clear. Okay, make sure if I haven't already made it clear, the main takeaway today is not just stop being anxious. Okay, yes, Paul says don't be anxious about anything. That's not all he says here. The main point, what we need, need, desperately need, what Paul is saying we desperately need, is that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. There's a story that I love in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that I think illustrates this so beautifully. And some of you, many of you have heard this story before. It's in the book of Matthew, chapter 14. I'm not going to turn there and read it to you, but you can go there yourself and read it this week if you want to. Jesus' apostles, his 12 followers, were in a boat by themselves. Jesus wasn't there. He had gone off by himself to pray. And suddenly a storm comes up. And they're ill-prepared for this storm. They're in serious danger. And as they're trying to wrestle with their boat and keep themselves alive, and the storm is howling around them, they look out and they see a figure coming towards them across the sea, which is incredibly, happy Halloween, that would be incredibly frightening, wouldn't it? Okay, And it's enough that there's the storm, now there's this ghostly figure coming toward them, and they all think it's a ghost, there's a spirit coming towards us, we're we're in so much trouble. And then one of them realizes, wait a second, 
That's Jesus. And they look, and it's Jesus, and he's literally walking toward them on the water. And he calls to them, and he says, hey, why don't you come out here with me? And so one of the apostles, his name's Peter, Peter says, I'm going to give that a try. That looks awesome. Okay? So Peter steps out of the boat onto the water. Okay? Now, some of you have heard this story before. A lot of you have heard this story before, like in Sunday school. And so you're like, oh yeah, Peter walked on water. Can you just pause and think about what you just said in your mind? Peter walked on water? Like, that's impossible. But he does it. He starts doing it. And he's walking towards Jesus. And Peter's walking across the water towards Jesus. And in the scripture in Matthew, it tells us something interesting. It says, and then when Peter saw the wind he started to sink. And so Peter starts to sink under the water. And he starts flailing around and he's like, help me, Jesus. And Jesus reaches out and lifts him up out of the water. And together they walk back into the boat. Here's what I find fascinating about that. It says he saw the wind. The wind didn't just start. It was always windy. From the moment the apostles saw Jesus walking on the water to the moment that Peter stepped out of the boat and was actually walking on the water. There was wind there the whole time. But Jesus, by his grace, by his mercy, and by his incredible power, was allowing Peter to walk on the water toward him. It wasn't until Peter saw the wind, which we all know saw the wind because wind is invisible, right? That means he noticed the wind. His attention, his focus went off of Jesus and went towards his circumstances. And what happened? He started to sink. Why? Was it because the wind got worse? Was it because the circumstances suddenly got harder? No. It was because he took his eyes off Jesus. And what rescued him? Jesus. He calls out to Jesus. He recognizes his problem. He calls out to Jesus. And Jesus reaches down and saves Peter. Now, this is a hypothetical question. I don't know the answer, and you don't know the answer. It's a hypothetical question. But do you believe Jesus would have just let Peter drown? I mean, maybe he just really wanted to make a point. I don't think so. From what I've read in the Gospels about Jesus, Jesus was always going to protect Peter. He was always going to protect the other 11 guys who were still in the boat. That's why he was walking towards them. But think about what Peter got to experience in that moment when he was focused not on his circumstances, but on his Savior. And think about what he started to miss out on when he took his eyes off the Savior. If you're a believer in Jesus, we have a God who is in control. Whatever noise is going on around us, whatever the waves may look like, whatever the storm may be, we serve a God who is in control. 
A God who loves us. A God who gave himself for us. A God who's able to control all the storms of our lives. If we're trusting in him, we have the hope, and we have the promise that we will be rescued by him. The question is, what's the experience going to be like in the in-between? Will we enjoy the thrill of walking with him even in the midst of the storms, the excitement and the joy of walking on water through the turmoil? Or will we let ourselves become focused on all of the circumstances around us? I am not saying, Paul is not saying, that life is easy. Paul is not saying, and I'm not saying, that if you follow Jesus and trust in him, your life will be simple. That all your worries will just fly away because all your circumstances will resolve themselves. No. Life will be hard. But the story we choose to tell ourselves and each other will influence how we experience this life. What if we keep our eyes on Jesus? What if we let Jesus be the star of our mental movie? Let's pray. We're going to pray, and in a moment we'll share communion together. So would you please join me bow your heads. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. We don't deserve your love, but in your mercy, you have saved us and you sustain us even when we are not always faithful to you. Even when our attention goes to all of our problems, you're still there. You're still loving us. You're still reaching out to pull us up because you love us. Thank you. Thank you so much for your love, for your mercy, for your grace, for your peace. I pray that all of us would have our eyes again turned to you. That we would respond to your amazing, extravagant love for us. That we would be able to live with the peace of God because we're trusting in you, our Lord. In your name we pray, amen.